0: Welcome to Saints, Sinners, and Serial Killers, with New York Times best-selling authors Casey Sherman and Dave Wedge. In this episode, Whitey Bulger returns to Boston to face the families of his victims, while hardened killers begin circling the notorious crime boss behind bars. And now, Casey Sherman and Dave Wedge.
1: In late June 2011, FBI Director Robert Mueller sent his own Learjet to Los Angeles for the FBI extraction team to escort Whitey Bulger and his girlfriend, Catherine Gregg, back to Boston. U.S. Marshal Neil Sullivan placed a belly chain and leg restraints on the once-fugitive crime boss for the six-hour flight home. The FBI only had a short time to interrogate Bulger, but they weren't going to let a second go to waste. During that questioning, FBI agent Rich Tien was surprised just at how racist he was. He threw the N-word around like he was drinking a cup of water, Tien told me during an interview. He complained a lot about the blacks in Southie and blacks in Santa Monica. When asked whether he had any leftover money stashed in those safety deposit boxes, Bulger replied, Why the hell would I tell you? But he did reveal a few things during that flight back to Boston. Right, Dave Wedge?
2: Yes, that's right. Whitey wanted to keep the mystery going. He said, fuck the FBI. I never wanted you guys to find me. I wanted you all to look like failures. Bulger confided that he had a plan that if he ever really got sick, he was going to go to Nevada and fall into a mine shaft, killing himself so that no one would ever find his body and keep the mystery going. Six hours later, the Learjet carved through the clouds above South Boston. Staring down at the rooftops of his old neighborhood, Bulger said, where's that? He had been on the run for so long, he didn't even recognize the place anymore. It was June 12, 2013, when Boston's
1: trial of the century began. Nearly 18 years after Bulger disappeared and fled a sweeping criminal indictment, he was finally brought into the federal courthouse in South Boston to face trial. It's a moment most Bostonians thought they'd never see. The courthouse security was fortress-like, but not only because of the Bulger case, but the city was still reeling from the Boston Marathon bombings from 2013.
2: Whitey was brought into the courthouse under heavy security, where federal prosecutors Brian Kelly, Fred Wyshack, and Zach Hafer laid out a chilling case of murder, extortion, drug dealing, deceit, and chaos. A parade of rogues was brought before the jury in Judge Denise Casper's packed courtroom. Medical examiners detailed grim autopsy reports as jurors were shown graphic pictures of murder victims, decayed corpses, tattered clothing, and murder weapons. Grizzled old retired state and local cops pointed out Bulger and his crew in grainy surveillance photos and described bloody murder scenes depicted in gruesome photos shown to the jury. Bookies, drug dealers, and other criminals told the court how Bulger lorded over the rackets, shaking them down and threatening them with violence if they didn't pay up. Prosecutor Brian Kelly, in his opening statement, said, At the center of all this murder and mayhem is one man, James Bulger. He called Whitey a hands-on killer who liked to do his own dirty work. Bulger sat at the table with his attorney, Jay Carney, and listened intently to each witness. He was a far cry from the muscular gangster depicted in the surveillance photos, but there were moments throughout the two-month trial where he displayed his temper and violent streak.
1: One day in the courtroom, Whitey's old right-hand man and partner in murder, Kevin Weeks, took the stand. Now, it was the first time the pair had seen each other in person in years. They glared at each other, Weeks on the stand and Bulger at the defense table. When Weeks called Whitey a rat, the elderly crime boss erupted in fury. You suck, Bulger shouted. Fuck you, Week shouted back. Fuck you too, Bulger replied. He had another nasty exchange with his longtime partner, Stephen the Rifleman Flunny, who had also cut a deal to testify against Bulger. Whitey was the last one caught,
2: and now all of his friends were his enemies. On August 12, 2013, the jury returned a verdict against Bulger, finding him guilty of racketeering and 30 other counts, ranging from drug trafficking to extortion, and found him guilty of 11 murders. Two months later, he was sentenced by Judge Casper to two consecutive life sentences. The waterfront courtroom is just blocks from the Haunty, where he and his crew buried bodies. It was right next door to where he executed Michael Donahue and John McIntyre, and wasn't far from his former headquarters, Triple O's, and the neighborhood where he grew up. As Whitey was led from the courthouse in shackles and shuttled away to federal prison by armed officers, It would be the last time he'd ever set foot in selfie. Whitey
1: Bulger was shipped off to the U.S. Penitentiary in Tucson, Arizona, where more than 1,500 inmates awaited his arrival. He was 84 years old now, and the years were taking their toll. Four months after he got there, Whitey's luck almost ran out when he was jumped by another inmate who went by the name Retro. The prisoner rushed Bulger with a homemade knife, stabbing him in the skull and neck. The scene was bloody and Whitey almost died. We interviewed one of Whitey's cellmates, a prison art teacher named Clement Chip Janus, who described how it all went down.
3: Uh, he was on his way to the art room to come to come see me. A guy was waiting for him, his name was, uh, we called him Retro. Right before he was uh, coming out of the cellhouse. Uh, retro attacked him, stabbed him in the head right behind the ear. Uh, Whitey fell, and the guy goes and runs to the to the lieutenant's office, and it's called a check-in move, and tells them, "I just stabbed Whitey Bulger. Take take me to the hall."
1: Describe saying. what 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 a check-in move is, and why 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 some prisoners do it.
3: Okay, the check-in move is is uh, Mr. Retro owed a lot of money for his heroin addict, his heroin addiction, or his heroin crazy over there every every prison has it so uh retro retro owed a lot of inmates he wanted off the yard or they were going to stab him so he had to make a move and he wanted to become famous obviously and uh it, it it didn't work out for him so the 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 wound went behind his ear and kind of by his neck right right where that muscle gets your be behind your ear went right in there
1: well, how
2: long was whitey in the infirmary
3: oh he was in there about a, about a, a couple months
2: Whitey and Chip Janice became friends behind bars. Their conversation spilled over from the prison art room to the yard, where Whitey spoke about the Gardner Museum heist in Boston, a notorious art robbery that some say was worth a billion dollars. Bulger told Chip, Everybody thinks I have the missing paintings, but I never laid my hands on them. Whitey also bragged that he'd once shot up a Boston Globe printing press with a machine gun. He told Chip that if he ever sat down for an interview, it would be with Barbara Walters. That was Whitey's huge ego revealing itself once again. He wanted nothing to do with the Boston Globe or the writers that wrote the book Black Mass. When that movie was getting made, Whitey said he refused to meet with the star, Johnny Depp, or the producers.
0: You were just saying, just saying gets people sent to Allenwood. Just saying could get you buried real quick.
2: He was pissed off that he was being portrayed truthfully as an FBI informant, Bulger wanted the world to believe he wasn't a rat and that he was actually the Robin Hood of South Boston. It was, of course, just more lies.
0: My health is going downhill. I'm now in a wheelchair and in intense pain. Finally got x-ray. was told, you have arthritis. Fell down using Walker. Knocked out and cut head. Took antibiotics to knock out infection, but pain is back. Headaches. Hope to get to hospital sooner or later. At 85 years now, don't have too much more time. Especially as every time I turn around, something else is wrong with my health. Come what may, I consider I had a good life. Great family. And many adventures along the way. I remain your friend always. James Bulger. 1428 AZ. My lucky number. (laughs) Those were the good old days. Keep smiling.
2: Hey, Casey. Like our fans who tune in here on Saint Sinners, and Serial Killers, we're all about truth. Working on our projects, I need a boost sometimes. I love my coffee, but I'm really loving these true lifestyle drinks.
1: Me too, Dave. There are six different flavors for every activity they're gluten and GMO free, organic, vegan, and there's no artificial sweeteners or additives. They're clean, and they contain all sorts of vitamins and nutrients.
2: And they're damn tasty. You know, True's founder, Jack McNamara, is a former pro hockey player, and he created True because he was looking for healthy energy drinks that wouldn't make you crash. I've been loving Energy, the Orange Mango Wake Up Blend, as well as Focus, the Apple Kiwi Brain Blend. Jack and his team have scientifically engineered some game-changing beverages, and I'm working several of them into my daily routine.
1: And I'm making them part of my lifestyle, too. True drinks for true crime fans. Go to drinktrue.com and use the code SAINTS to get 30% off your purchase. Now, back to Saints, Sinners, and Serial
2: Killers. Baldry yearned to be reunited with Catherine Gregg, but he knew that would never happen. Catherine was serving time in Minnesota, and that broke Whitey's heart. He once said that he'd accept the death penalty if the feds would just let Catherine go free. That wouldn't happen either, at least while Whitey was alive. While serving time at the Coleman Federal Corrections Complex in Florida, his captors continued to fuck with him. He was placed in solitary confinement for masturbating in his cell. That really pissed him off. Whitey wanted to take a lie detector test to prove his innocence. I'm 85 years old. My sex life is over, he wrote in a letter. Then, Whitey got in an argument with the prison nurse while he was complaining of chest pains. You're treating me like a dog, he complained. You'll have your day of reckoning and you'll pay for this. Bulger was charged with a 299, making an implied threat to an employee. The threat was reported to prison warden Charles Lockett. Now
1: that's where things got really weird. At the time, Bulger was classified as a high-risk inmate, while his medical condition was care level 3, the most extreme. He'd suffered several heart attacks at this point, and he was now 89 years old. Yet mysteriously, he was switched to a lower medical care level. Warden Lockett claimed that Bulger's health had dramatically improved. This new classification allowed Lockett to transfer Whitey again, but this time there was no valid reason to ship Whitey off because Coleman Prison had all the medical facilities that Bulger needed. If Bulger was indeed going to be transferred, he should have been sent to the U.S. Medical Center for Federal Prisoners in Springfield, Missouri, or to Terre Haute, Indiana. Instead, He was put on a bus and sent off to Hazleton, West Virginia, into a place known as Misery Mountain.
2: When Whitey showed up at the gates of USP Hazleton, he was a shadow of his former self. He was too infirm to be able to be housed in the second tier where the guards wanted to put him. An intake officer noted that his file was marked with the words OC Informant, meaning Whitey was an organized crime informant. He was not someone who should have been housed at Hazleton, a prison filled with convicted members of La Cosa Nostra and other criminal organizations. The officer flagged his lieutenant, who called the warden, Joe Coakley. The decision was made that Balger would go into general population, a decision that no one we interviewed for our books had made any sense. Balger was escorted to a cell and he went to bed. He would never emerge again. Among the inmates waiting there for Balger in the unit at Hazleton was Freddie Gius a notorious mob enforcer from Springfield, Massachusetts, a city about two hours west of Boston. Freddie was doing life for orchestrating a hit on Springfield Mafia boss Adolfo Big Al Bruno and executing another mobster. Also waiting for Bulger there was Polly D. Collegero, another Boston-area mobster who was doing life for the brutal killing and decapitation of a young woman who he and his crew feared was going to talk to the feds about their racketeering. Gius, a 51-year-old feared assassin, was a shot caller at Hazleton, which meant he controlled the rackets and he could start or stop violence in the yard on command. Bulger's cell slammed shut for the night and he went to sleep for his final time.
1: When the cells opened at the break of dawn the next morning, Woody's cellmate slipped out quietly for breakfast. Bulger never got out of bed. two killers entered the cell carrying socks filled with padlocks, a brutal prison weapon. As the elderly gangster lay in his bed, his final moments were consumed by a savage beating that left him dead in his face so disfigured that some believed there was an attempt to carve out his eyes. The killers slipped out of the cell undetected, and Bulger lay there dead in his bed until he was discovered by an officer making routine rounds. The decision to move Bulger to Hazleton remains under investigation. Just why Warden Coakley and the officers on duty that night decided to put Bulger in general population remains a mystery. Bulger's family is suing the Federal Bureau of Prisons for answers. Warden Coakley retired a few months after the murder. Freddie Gius and Paulie D. Collegero were moved to solitary confinement in the prison's disciplinary unit immediately after the killing. Neither has been charged, but both remain in solitary at Hazleton. Gius has written letters to us and acknowledged that he was jailhouse friends with a guy named Freddie Weischel. Freddie was a Boston man who served 36 years for a murder he didn't commit, and he was basically placed there. By Whitey Bulger himself. Freddie also expressed sympathy in a letter to us for Cadillac Frank Salemi, a Boston Mafia Don convicted of a host of racketeering charges, many based on information provided to the FBI by guess who? Whitey Bulger.
0: In one of his
2: letters, Freddie told us,
0: I'm in solitary now as the Bureau of Prisons likes to play games with guys in my situation. They have us sit back here for years while they decide if they're going to charge us or handle it in the prison.
2: Whitey's corpse sat on a slab in the prison before he was brought back to South Boston and a small private funeral was held. His brother Billy attended, as did Catherine Gregg's twin sister, Margaret McCusker. Whitey's buried in a Boston cemetery with his parents. His name is not on the grave.
0: Saints, Sinners, and Serial Killers is a joint production of Mudhouse Media and Fort Point Media. This episode brought to you with thanks to our sponsor, Work Local in Marshfield, Massachusetts. Special thanks to Charles Dannison for playing Whitey Bulger and Paul Kandarian for playing Freddie G.S. Original music in this episode was provided by Chris Spagone and Black Hesher. Find Chris at Art on Instagram and Black Hesher at Black Hesher on Facebook. For more on the Mudhouse Media Podcast Network, visit mudhousemedia.com. That's Mudhouse with two D's. And for the latest updates on their podcasts and all of the writing and film projects of Casey Sherman and Dave Wedge, visit fortpointmedia.com.